Hello and welcome to Nodicast, the podcast on nonlinear dynamics, the essential theory that governs pretty much everything on Earth and beyond. I'm C. Nararaj of Villanova University, senior editor and host of Nodicast. Nodicast is an outreach of nonlinear dynamics, the journal published by Springer Nature. This podcast is a continuation of the discussion we started in podcast one. We are discussing nonlinear modeling and dynamic analysis of the COVID-19 pandemic that's taken over 2.3 million lives and devastated the economies of so many nations. I have with me an expert panel consisting of professors Bala Balachandran from University of Maryland, Gerge Rost from University of Zagat, Hungary, and Tendreiro Machado from University of Porto, Portugal. I'm C. Nataraj from Villanova University in USA. So, welcome again, gentlemen, and let us continue the conversation. So maybe we can talk a little bit about control because we mentioned vaccination, you know, so if we kind of look at the sort of the inherent response of the system, but then you have the control responses, which is, you know, government policy and um, things like that, uh, quarantining, lockdowns, but also vaccination. Um, so uh, I have not looked into this, but I'm just curious to know, uh, you know, could modeling uh, lead to a, uh, maybe an optimal vaccination policy? Could the modeling be used to direct policy for in order to achieve optimum vaccination, given the, you know, given the, uh, all the different logistical issues, uh, given the social reactions uh, in many countries, um, given perhaps the inherent immunities uh, that Bala just mentioned? <clears throat> well, Maybe uh, I can uh, give a response, but uh, not in same direction. Uh, I, I started to use uh, multidimensional scaling first to analyze, let's say, the first wave in time and space. That's just, uh, so later, I started with a different perspective because I came to the genetic code uh, from uh, RNA, cytosine, and antimanic guanine, like uh, a computer program. I'm electrical and computer engineer. And uh, I started uh, assembling, the, the getting from databases, the genetic code of a lot of virus, including coronavirus, but uh, also from previous uh, uh, pandemia a couple of years ago and so forth, inclu- including uh, other uh, not coronavirus, but so I compared genetic code uh, using uh, some distances and then multidimensional scaling. And uh, more recently, I uh, let, let's say extended the, the, the group, the data set, and I focus only in coronavirus. So uh, uh, the first wave, then what we now call second or third wave, so including. Uh, from the mink variant from Denmark, from the variants from UK and South Africa, 
then the variants from uh, Brazil, and more recently, the second the variant of the variant of Brazil, the P1, and now is starting a variant not yet well known from uh, Mexico, by the way. <laughs> so, and uh, 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 what uh, happens is that uh, the genetic code in RNA is like a program. Uh, well, unfortunately, we don't know yet how that program works, but we can compare. I use Kolmogorov complexly, complexity theory and Shannon information theory to compare. And uh, Kolmogorov uh, theory did better the job than Shannon information. And uh, uh, it's clear the results of the difference. Unfortunately, uh, we have a kind of snapshot, so the dynamics is not as we are used to some chart in time. What I have is a kind of portrait at a given collection of genetic codes collected at a given time, and then a second portrait and a third portrait, and so on. And those portraits show that the, the more recent variants uh, are much more different from uh, from previous ones. That is to say, when I started comparing the coronavirus, the genetic code was much more similar, even if they were different clades, different groups, okay? Now, the, the new ones are much more different, which pose difficulties, in my opinion, to vaccination. Now, uh, in my opinion, the vaccination is effective for the previous, or to the not so recent uh, variants, but uh, we may have a crisis, uh, maybe with uh, the more recent variants or to a new one that will appear in the near future. Are you scaring us, Tendrero? <laughs> maybe, maybe. <laughs> and the problem is that we don't know yet how to translate the genetic information to, let's say, uh, design a vaccine directly, okay? So there were huge progresses in the vaccination, but uh, the time it took to produce these vaccines took one year, let's say, which is much faster than the 10 years that it was used to take or more to do a vaccine. But the virus can change in one week or so. So there is still a large difference in the time to adapt the vaccines to new variants and let's say to design a vaccine and sooner or later, uh, we shall have the tools to uh, design a vaccine from genetic code. So it will be like a recipe, but not nowadays. So uh, even if we have vaccines, I fear that those vaccines may be not so useful in the, by the end of the year. Hopefully, I am wrong, but <laughs> there is that possibility. Well, I, I would like to, uh, you know, uh, say that this uh, virus is something you've got to get used to living with it. I think it's not something <laughs> vaccination could eliminate completely. But let, let me uh, defer to Gergen and I'll come back. <laughs> I mean, I, I have to, I have to, I happen to agree with you, Bala, but go ahead, Gergen. So. Or you could eliminate smallpox. Uh, and possibly polio is, ne is near. Uh, yeah, but it's indeed really difficult. Uh, so going back to the question, uh, 
I think this is a very important question, and this is one point where mathematical models can be very useful indeed. So, uh, when we have a limited, uh, limited access to vaccination, as we have now in most, most countries, uh, all countries have limited access to vaccination at the moment, it's very important how you prioritize specific groups of the population who will get the vaccine first, who second, and so on. Uh, and actually, most countries, or not, not all countries, follow, but most follow the strategy that they start with the most vulnerable. So the high-risk groups receive the vaccine first, the, the elderly or the ones with chronic uh, diseases and underlying conditions, and so on. There are a few places when they start with the active population, like in Indonesia, for example, they, they vaccinate first those who who are those who work and they have lots of contacts during their work. And one thing that mathematical modeling is really revealing is that by vaccinating a person, you don't just protect the person, but you, you protect all the contacts of this, pers of this person and indirectly the contacts of those contacts and so on. So there is an indirect protection. If you vaccinate a given group of people, you provide indirect protection to others. So it's not so obvious that you should start with the high-risk groups. Uh, and especially we, we did some modeling, very similar modeling for influenza a while ago. And for influenza, the major drivers of influenza outbreaks are the children. So if you vaccinate the children, you could protect so much indirect, you could generate so much indirect protection for elderly, for example, their grandparents will not get infected. Uh, that can be even more beneficial to the elderly age groups as you would vaccinate them directly. So for, uh, for, for COVID-19, the, the risk of severe outcomes is so much tilted towards the elderly that most models came to the conclusion if you want to reduce uh, deaths and hospitalizations, the most you should indeed start with the, with the high-risk groups. But it's not, not an obvious question. So it's a strong function of the contacts uh, these people have, right? So if you are able to isolate them adequately, then it makes sense to vaccinate the most susceptible rather than the most with most contacts. Right. So it's another parameter in there. I mean, yes. it's a bit of an ethical quandary, right? It's uh, the best solution for to save the most people may yes. end up not being also, the best for a few saving of the them. most lives is even it's not so, so obvious. If you uh, if you if you do your calculation in uh, loss of life years, for example, then you can get to a different conclusion if you just uh, the number of, of uh, fatalities you, pre you prevented. Mm -hmm. Very interesting. Mm. I, I thought maybe we can talk a little bit about data and then, you know, try not talk about a couple of unmodeled things. Uh, so, uh, you know, clearly we've had epidemics for a very long time and I think we've already discussed a little bit about this, but uh, when you study history, we find that the sort of the first real good set of data comes from 17th century in London. Uh, they had a plague and they kept this weekly 
what do they call them bills of uh, mortality so you know which which is very good data considering you know how long ago that was uh, but but it kind of it's dwarfed by the kind of data we have now right uh, uh, although tenrero said maybe there is some of the demographic data is not being collected but my understanding was that it's there if you admit it to the hospital at least right so clearly we have you know tons of data and there is effort to collect all of this data um so i'm just curious about your perspective on whether you know how good that data is uh, you know how how much better it needs to be uh, are we able to absorb them either in parametric or database models um i mean like machine learning based models or you know where where will it uh, or, or will it be is is it one of those situations where you have so much data that we probably will be mining the data in the future models or do we end up in a situation where we don't have enough data you know what, what, where are we right now uh, you know what's your perspective on that yeah so i think data like is is important but again the quality and how it's used is also important i think uh, if i use the black box approach uh, for lack of a better word uh, with the neural networks the data that you put in pretty much dictates what you get out at least with other models with the compartmental models there are things that you could tell if the data that you have has something in it which uh, probably not uh, something that you'd expect to see so for us in terms of how we we viewed it that the infection data that is there we feel is better quality than the people who have succumbed to the virus or the death rate so we have uh, stayed away from modeling uh the death uh, dynamics of the uh, the people who are susceptible and unfortunately don't recover from it we stayed away from that data because we feel that data has a lot of uh, things that are not captured on the other hand the infection dynamics we feel the data is available across countries as well as within local regions has been fairly consistent with what you're seeing with what we can predict uh but i i i don't think it's uh, we can go away from data uh so one thing why it's important is uh, to look at the spanish uh, flu to look at how much time it spread across the different countries uh, so now we can look back and say why it took so long of course the travel and other things come into play as well whereas now with the data that we have we could actually tell how much how, how quickly the virus spread from one place to another place and even some of the travel restrictions that are put in place are purely based on data So I think data has a place uh, but again uh, one has to use them with care uh, and how much data is good I think too much data is not good either for us at least uh, uh, in terms of infection rate but if one looks to dig deeper into uh, genetics and other things a, bit, a lot of data is necessary uh, so again uh, for what we have seen I think having data and how we use it with care is important um, and uh, it's uh, it's also data driven in the sense the data is alive every day the data gets updated it's not that data is uh, static it's uh, things are moving uh, so again our models depend upon that aspect as well and going back to this question that you raised earlier about immunity you know how long is it to last i think that again to get that type of information one would need data uh the SARS code 2 is like a is an RNA virus uh, which like the fear flu and measles last seen noted and some of the people have mentioned is uh 
prone to changes and mutations. So again, data is the one that's going to give us answers. Uh, science will take some time to catch up with it. But uh, so for me, data is critical. But how you use it is again very uh, a piece that one has to pay careful attention. Tendrero. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, my opinion is that tackling data is a kind of addictive. <laughs> that is to say, the more you have, the more you want. Uh, can be in time, can be in space. Often we have the idea that uh, is useless some uh, information, even from uh, one century or two centuries ago. And uh, collecting that data, or that to say, converting that information from analogic <laughs> and written to digital is a huge work. But uh, sooner or later, that uh, volume of data, even if it is not uh, totally reliable, because the measurement, the recording, even that translation can be not 100% not accurate, but sooner or later, it will be useful. I, I can cite a, a, a book by Abraham Fleschner, which was the title, the Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. I repeat, <laughs> Usefulness of Useless Knowledge. It's a very interesting thing to read. That guy had a, a large influence in science at USA, by the way. And uh, it was, uh, I believe, the director of uh, the Princeton uh, Institute where Einstein uh, worked and so forth. So I... I and uh, suggest give a look. And uh, something often seems uh, not reasonable or not interesting. For example, to go into COVID, why do we need uh, to record uh, the gender or the age or whatever of a given uh, people that is infected or that is dead, that passed away? But if we think a little bit more, and we already discussed it here, the, the age is important. Everybody knows that nowadays. And uh, sex also. And maybe the, the weight, or maybe if it was vaccinated, it was, for example, for COVID, uh, uh, some studies uh, that pointed that some vaccination to other diseases triggered a better immune response to COVID, although they were different uh, diseases. So, uh, to know, uh, and sometimes that th those phenomena are not uh, clear or obvious. And uh, so, to have more and more data, even it seems not uh, interesting, often, if we explore later carefully, we note some relationships, some hidden uh, and embedded phenomena and information and relationship which was not clear at first sight. In complex systems, and we are moving nowadays to complex systems, everything, the economy, the diseases, the sociology, the history, nowadays everything is complex. The, the, our Western civilization was founded at science in the opposite behavior, that is to say, the opposite perspective, to simplify, to get uh, some models that we can tackle, and then, based on the small pieces, to construct a, a larger model. 
but uh, the sum, as they say in complex systems, uh, the sum of the parts is smaller than the whole. <laughs> and uh, uh, <laughs> sometimes it's, it's not so clear. Imagine you are, and I did it, tackling for global warming data series for temperature, let's say. And uh, uh, you start seeing that you need data for the First World War and Second World War in Europe, and you don't have. It's missing data because of the World War, for example. And then you start doing for United States, for example, where you have longer time series, 100 years old, about that. But 100 years old data uh, for the time constant of the Earth is almost one microsecond in electronics. <laughs> Do you understand? The time constant of, of the Earth is million of years. So, but 100 years ago, most countries didn't record the temperatures. Why was it necessary 100 years ago to record the temperature for nothing? And same applies to almost everything. So even if nowadays we don't see usefulness of that uh, collection of data, of whatever, most surely, I am 100% sure that it will be useless <laughs> now, but it will be useful later. Yeah, it was very interesting. Yeah, uh, yeah mm -hmm. of course, we have uh, much more data than ever before, but the reliability is another that's an important issue. So sometimes I wish we had fewer data, but more reliable. So, for example, the, the most basic information we want to gather is that how many new infections we have on a given day, so the, the incidence. So, uh, unfortunately for, for this disease, there are many asymptomatic people, there are many people with very mild symptoms, and even those who develop more severe symptoms, they are mostly not very specific and can be mistaken with influenza or other respiratory diseases. There's no easy way to tell just from symptoms who has COVID. Uh, so we, we have to rely on tests. So once we rely on tests, then the data we collect is subject to the limitations we have in capacity of how many tests we can perform in a given day. And there was also, it, it, this issue came up that there are much less cases on weekends, because of course they don't do as many tests on the, on the weekends. So, uh, <laughs> so for example, there was a large-scale study in Hungary in, in May, a severe epidemiological study, to to measure or to count uh, how many people contracted the infection. It was from from blood tests, a severe epidemiological study, and they found out that twenty times more people have contracted the infection than it was reported as new cases officially. So, of course, it was because we had very limited testing at the very beginning. And uh, later, in, even in this, the fall, when we had more testing, but when the, the case numbers started to rise very quickly, it was again, there was a period when it was clear we, we could not catch up uh, with our testing. So again, then the daily reported case numbers became very unreliable again. And then when this antigenic testing, these tests appeared and become widely used, then we had other problem. Now we could do much more tests, but they use different types of antigenic tests with different uh, 
reliability, and then different organizations started to use this test. So we had data coming up from different resources, different sources of different reliability. So even this, this basic, most basic data you would need, how many new infections there are on a given day, it's not very reliable. Uh, and okay, so what is reliable? You can think fatalities are more reliable, but even there, there are problems with fatalities. So if you look at uh, compare the reported deaths and from different countries, you can do this comparison to many sure. countries, how many deaths were reported due to COVID-19 and how many excess deaths were there. So how many more deaths they experienced than in a, say, average of the past five years. You can see various levels of discrepancy in different countries. So obviously even deaths are inaccurately reported. Also in reporting deaths is a more longer procedure, so it can, can have significant reporting delays. Uh, and we have seen it also in Hungary when the number of deaths went up, then there were very long lags in reporting them. So even uh, in, in some sense, we are not, not as good as they were in London in the uh, 17th century. <laughs> How they were very accurate in in counting the, the deaths. We, we could not. <laughs> yeah, we think it's yeah. We, we trust the. Well, we think they were accurate. <laughs> yeah. So we trust so the numbers. After a while, yeah. I, I started to think that hospitalizations can be the most reliable uh, data, even it has some issues, because then different hospitals might have different standards for admission if it's not. Uh, uniform across the country uh, and say disease is moving from one region and the other then it can distort uh, and also how long people stay in hospital is not just due to their disease status it's also due to their socioeconomic status so sometimes uh, a person is well enough to to go home if he can be treated in isolation but sometimes their circumstances are not not such like he can go home no, no free room, and no circums, no helping family and so on. So they keep them in the hospital. So even there are some kind of uh, distortions even in the hospitalization data. But overall, I, I still consider that that is the most uh, most reliable data for me. Well, in Hungary, was uh, hospitalization data. This is a good point for us to take a break. We'll be right back after this announcement. You are listening to Nodicast, a lively podcast on nonlinear dynamics covering the latest research on new methods, exciting applications, and breakthroughs. I'm C. Nadaraj from Villanova University, your host. Nodicast is an outreach of nonlinear dynamics, the journal published by Springer Nature. So, you know, I wanted to say, uh, because I, um, one branch of my research is doing a lot of work with biomedical diagnostics, where we are trying to integrate machine learning with physics-based modeling and so on. Uh, kind of uh, alluding to something Tenrero said, we have a lot of my work uh, moved into that. And in um, biomedical data that you get from hospitals, you know, it has the echoes of exactly the same thing we are talking about, the epidemiological data. 
uh, a lot of the data is very inconsistent and it's uh, changes over time so same same hospital same unit reports different data two months from now because their instruments changed or their ways of collecting changed or somebody in charge you know changed um so so i like to say that all data is good um meaning um some of the as long as you're aware of the deficiency of the data as the quality of the data because the methods are evolving as well on, on how to deal with this data and not necessarily from maybe this group but there are people working in the you know data space who are kind of developing better and better techniques so to echo what tenrero said we should just collect as much data as possible today because maybe 3 years from now we could get extract more information out of it or more knowledge out of that same you know data set perhaps uh, we'll find better ways of uh, reducing distortions for example uh, i mean there's a limit how much you can do but um, uh you know and and some of the things that yeah, hypothesis uh you don't know what the questions would be so um you know it, it i think again uh, gerge maybe you knew this already but it i think i i became aware later that for example men were more susceptible to have more severe reactions than women apparently because women are better immune one, one more reason women are better than men <laughs> that they have better immune systems um and uh uh in of course we already knew about age specific uh, you know immunity as well as comorbidities and so on uh, but so, but i'm saying there could be hypotheses that i'm i'm just going to say this as a guess that there could be hypotheses for the studies that you could pose 2 years from now that maybe you won't think about today like like the blood type that you know kind of came up later on about o type being less uh, having less severe uh, reactions because of the way the immune system responds right so so just my sense that they should just collect as good quality data as possible as much data as possible even if it's not useful to kind of doing the kind of compartmental model that i am doing or ar baller working with you know so just a just a perspective that i have working with data in the medical field in general <clears throat> i think um, you know we we kind of try to bring it to a close um, maybe just maybe a couple of things i would like to ask uh maybe i i'll pose two questions and maybe we can go around the table uh one question is uh what i'll call non traditional people like people like uh you know I, i'll include at least uh, me bala and tenrero in this as people who are not in this field of epidemiology who are generally in the you know field of dynamic systems who kind of came into this field um how would we you know what's our best best way we can contribute to the knowledge epidemiologists already have uh you know the kind of the you know they, i mean it's again we are not deriving well we are maybe de- altering the models we are not doing entirely new models but perhaps newer analysis techniques newer ways of providing insight this would be my guess but you know where where could the again this is sort of a message to the listeners on where could they go and and that's sort of the least the second question you know where should the future directions the immediate future direction of research in this area where are the where is the biggest need um, that people could contribute to um maybe gerge could okay, uh, so, start and then the others could comment so on so i think so that there are as, as we know there are lots of models for covid-19 and i was i remember i was talking to a journalist it was back in the spring and i i told him 
there were already 500 models published for COVID-19. I was really surprised, and which which is the good one? <laughs> so, uh, uh, so we have a large number of models. They different in, in different ways. Um, so there is no. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, so there's no one. So we need a simple yeah. pendulum model for epidemics. So there's not one one COVID-19 model which t- tells you everything and that is the best and you forget the rest. Huh? So I think the best the best way to approach is uh, from from those for those who have uh, expertise in other fields is to trying to find uh, a very specific question not trying to do the the big COVID-19 model, COVID-19 model of everything, just trying to find a question where you, you, one thinks that his or her expertise can be particularly useful to answer that very specific question. So it's like uh, an example from somebody from delay differential equations. You can think of while well, many, uh, well, many models ignores delays or, or represents these delays in a, in a simplified way. So you can think if I if I make it more accurately, it gives a different result a little bit. If it gives, then it is, it is meaningful or it is useful. Uh, or if I have, a, uh, I don't know, expertise in, in control theory, then what, what question I can answer with control theory, which probably most how to say traditional epidemiological modelers uh, wouldn't think of or wouldn't use such a tool. Tenreiro? Okay. Uh, well, I would first say that I'm not a paladin of the of the data mining or whatever. In fact, I have uh, work, as you know, in uh, let's say the mathematical models in the more classical way. Although I think that uh, uh, the synergies, the, the let's say the cross-field uh, activity in, def- in different uh, areas is uh, beneficial to have new perspectives. So I think uh, to the first topic you mentioned that uh, to, to have people that is, uh, let's say, not from epidemiology and to have some work on this can, uh, let's say, uh, bring to the field some tools that maybe were not so usual, okay, in that area, were more well-known in other areas. So I think that we can have some cross-field fertilization, let us say, this way. And uh, that is for the the models. So we can have the, uh, let's say, analytical models, but we can have some, also some, computational models, let's say. This, 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 this uh, name, computational models, is somewhat ambiguous, but let's call it this way. And um, in what concerns uh, the future, I think that this pandemic uh, gives, you, gives us some lessons. First, that, uh, again, something that seemed useless or at small importance is not a nuclear weapon or a spaceship, <laughs> and then we <laughs> see that uh, it's important. So what seems important and not important is very misleading, as we see 
not only here, but in many other things. So all knowledge is sooner or later very useful. And the first thing, that is one thing. And second thing is that we should be uh, thinking on the errors we have at the beginning and what we should do for the next pandemia. Because people are so worried with present one and the variations that is not uh, giving sufficient thought of what to do to the next one. And there is already, by the way, I don't want to put fear on you, <laughs> but there is already some dark cloud is in the sky. And uh, so it's not topic of this talk, but there are already some dark clouds in the sky for future ones. So besides other topics like global warming or the the effects of pandemia in the economy or whatever. So, or the, even the effects of pandemia in the other diseases like oncology or whatsoever, okay? So these effects, uh, uh, the more knowledge we have, the better we can control these, uh, these perturbations using the control of terminology. And uh, finally, I'd like to say one thing about collecting data. My experience is that uh, to collect a multitude of characteristics, even they at first uh, sight seem superfluous, usually gives more opportunity to filter, let's say this way, to filter problems. We are prisoners of the models in the mechanics, like force equals mass multiplied by acceleration. If you are controlling a mechanical system, you think on the noise, of the measurement of position and velocity and so forth. But now with pandemia, we see, we talked about a multitude of problems of measuring this or measuring that. And it's if you have multiple measurements from different variables, even if they have some noise, the collection of all of them together, multidimensional, helps filtering, which is not the usual way of controlling a thermal system, hydraulic system, or mechanical system. Excellent. I'm, I'm happy you've ended it on a positive note because you were talking about dark clouds and everything. So I don't <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think, I think for, for me, uh, I think this, although I'm not uh, from the field of epidemiology, the complexity, the dynamics was a fascinating aspect for me. I think uh, having uh, looked at dynamic dynamics for uh, more than 25 years, looking at how complex the system is, how it's evolving and to unravel it is what uh, fascinated me. And so uh, also a small push from our side was to take people away from uh, statistical models and start looking at other aspects. and. Uh, in particular, delay differential equations. So, so delays are something that we used before in manufacturing processes, and vehicle dynamics, and other areas, but this is our first foray into disease dynamics. Uh, and for us, uh, trying to figure out how may one capture the variability in response in a population, be it due to age or a different health, healthness level or something else, so distributed delay was uh, helpful for us in that aspect. And again, once we get to distributed delays, the question, how do you solve those equations, another issue. 
said all along, I think the other issues that were brought to bear on this thing, uh, estimation is an issue as well. So that again played a critical role. Uh, and uh, you know, I'm an experimentalist as well in my lab. I can experiment with the system, systems and collect data myself and use that to look at analytical models and what comes out of them to compare with them. But in this case, the data is something I did not produce. It came from somewhere else. So the question is how much could I trust this data? So the fertility of that data and playing with it again was an eye opener. Uh, so uh, for it also for me was a good way to get students involved in it. I have two undergraduate students who are working with me right now. One is a, a sophomore and others a junior. Uh, for them, playing with data and uh, visualizing what it means was very really attractive. Uh, although they were not enormous by delay differential equations, they were you know, interested in a neural network, so that was a way to get the hook into it. So, so this uh, whole thing has opened up uh, plenty of possibilities. Uh, and uh, you know, I would not sit here today and say I'm an expert on this topic, but I would say I'm trying to apply what we've gleaned from our past experiences and bring the bear upon this problem. In terms of dark clouds, uh, I, I do think uh, if we had to look at forecasts, uh, in terms of multi-year forecasts and beyond, these type of things, could repeat itself historically. I think if you look at 30, 40 years, this is a possibility. That's pretty much what our models are telling us right now under the long-term forecasting. But that makes it all the more fascinating as to you know, how could one capture the complexity of this evolution itself. Uh, so it's easy perhaps for us to sit today and think in terms of what's happening around us this week or tomorrow or the next month, but thinking long-term uh, people outside the disease dynamics uh, or epidemiology could also play a role in terms of forecasting. I think so. That's a role I think we should all embrace uh, going forward. Hopefully, we can make a meaningful contribution. Thank you. Yeah, thanks, Bella. I, I was just going to say, um, yeah, like, likewise, uh, as Bella said, it's, it's been an enjoyable foray into something a little different from what I normally do. But um, I was. Um, I mean, I'm, as I mentioned, I'm you know, more used to kind of having data from outside without control, my control, and having data of all sorts where some of it is reliable, some of it is not, and we've been evolving techniques over the last 15 years to deal with data like that. So this has been an interesting exercise, you know, dealing with that. And, uh, and also it's always, uh, it's always enjoyable to work on a topical problem, something that's of current uh, interest and of urgent interest in this case. My, my hope is that this this uh, discussion, you know, maybe throws up some interesting questions. Doesn't just necessarily provide any answers, but throws up some interesting questions for people. Uh, and we we hope to draw more people from the from the dynamics community, dynamic systems community, nonlinear dynamics community, to maybe contribute their their ideas, their techniques to this. Uh, my my particular focus always has been maybe uh, rather than accurate predictions, but more about maybe enhancing the insights. Uh, and and hopefully that will lead to sort of better ways of, you know, doing things, understanding where things come from. So that's that's been sort of my you know, individual focus, but also bringing in other things like modeling things outside of the traditional things like so social, like economic, um, you know, 
I think brings with it uh, a lot of interest for me. So that's been my focus on this. We can clearly talk about this for many hours by delving into the details, but I'm afraid we are out of time and have to stop now. So I would like to urge the audience to go deeper and dig into the technical papers that we and many others have published for all the gory details. Well, gentlemen, I wish to thank you again for coming to this discussion and sharing your expertise. I'm indeed honored to be part of this discussion. This has been a very interesting conversation on the contribution nonlinear modeling and analysis can make to understanding, predicting, and controlling COVID-19 and other pandemics. Let me also conclude with a fervent hope that the current pandemic will be contained in the next few months before it takes too many more casualties. It's also reasonably predictable that COVID-19 will certainly and unfortunately not be the last pandemic. Let us hope that we will use the power of science by putting it front and center to help deal with future pandemics in a much better fashion than humanity has done with this one. Thank you. Theme music is called Dynamic. It was composed by Stephen William Cornish and was crafted for us by Neha Nataraj. Expert podcast editing and final production was carried out by Helena Ernst, a media studies expert in training at Villanova University. Nodicast is supported by a generous grant from Springer Nature. We appreciate it very much. We also wish to thank support and encouragement from Professor La Carbonara, the editor-in-chief. I'm C. Nataraj from Villanova University, your host of Nudicast. For more details, including links to panelists and papers, please visit the website nodicast.org. Thank you, folks, for spending the better part of the hour listening to us. Now go read some nonlinear dynamics papers, and I will see you next time. Bye bye.